everyone, Pastor Matt from Susquehanna Valley Church. Have you ever gotten ready to go on vacation? I mean, like, you got all your stuff, and it's packed, and it's maybe, it's kind of staged in the living room or staged in the hallway, waiting to go out to the car. And have you ever gotten to that point, and you look at all the stuff there, and you think, do I really need this much stuff? Like, do I really need five pairs of clothes for a weekend trip? Do I really, do I really need a swimsuit if it's going to be during the winter? Do I really need all the things that I've got planned? And I, I was thinking about that because that's totally me. I always look at it and I say, I don't know if we need all this stuff. But the problem is, like, there's always that moment on the trip or on the vacation where you go, I wish I would have packed it. Like, I wish I would have packed a toothbrush or I wish I would have packed a, another pair of clothes or, or whatever it is. There's always the I wish I had. Uh, and, and it's kind of been interesting for me with my family because I am very much a minimalist. I want to take the least amount of stuff so it doesn't bog us down. It doesn't create a, a crammed car. I want to take the least amount of stuff possible to get where I'm going. So I'm a minimalist. The tension comes because my children are what I call muchimalists. They like to have much of everything wherever we go. And, and every time we're going somewhere, I'm like, guys, what are you doing? It's winter. We don't need snorkeling stuff to go to the mountains. What, what, how does this even fit in? The other day, I kid you not, we're getting ready to go to uh, their grandparents' house. And I'm looking at the stuff and I'm thinking, we're going to be here for eight hours. How is the car full right now? And I'm looking at and saying, do we need that? Do we need that? And, and I look and I'm like, do we really need a four foot long double edged Nerf sword? And so I find my kids, I'm like, guys, do we really need this? And they're like, yes, we need it. And I'm like, why do you need a four foot long double edged Nerf sword to go to grandma's house? And they're like, ninja moves, duh. We need to practice our ninja moves. And I'm like, there are no ninja moves at Nana's house. Like, it's, it's kind of funny because it's always been this tension of, I want to take too little, they want to take too much. And I, and I open up with that idea because when we talk about life after death, which is what we're doing in this Afterlife series, there's things that we take with us and there's things that we don't take with us. And I don't want us to have the wrong idea and think we should live our lives one way, store up a bunch of treasure on earth and find out that none of it really impacts life after death. I think we should live in light of that. So we're going to look at, look at a, a scripture. But before that, I want us to really be challenged with an idea. Uh, and it's a question, what does your life suggest you intend to take to the afterlife? What does your life suggest that you intend to take to the afterlife? Not what does your head suggest? Not right now, what do you think you get to take with you to the afterlife. But if you were to look at your life, look at the way you spend your time, the way that you spend your money, the way that you invest yourself into, into different things that you do, what does your life suggest that you get to take to the afterlife? And I think it's a telling question as we begin to think about, that, about this idea of kind of staging our things in life to say, what am I going to take with me and what am I not going to take with me? The Apostle Paul is writing to a, a young pastor named Timothy, and he wants to talk to Timothy about a group of people in a church who've been packing the wrong stuff. And he wants them to stop and think, what should life really be about? It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Before we go there, I just want us to pray and ask God to give us insight as we consider his word. 
Um, Lord, you're amazing. We praise you even in times of difficulty or times of uncertainty. We're confident in you and your plan and what you're doing. And so, Father, I pray that that would be true of us. I ask this morning, no matter where we are, no matter where we've been, that, Lord, we be a people who look to your word to guide us and to grow us and to shape us. In your name we pray. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's going to talk about the return of Jesus. We'll pause halfway through what we're reading, and then we'll come back to this idea of what do we pack to take with us. So 1 Timothy 6, we'll pick it up in verse 15. If you want to read on your own, you could go all the way back to the beginning of of chapter 6. It's all great stuff. Um, But we'll start in verse 15. He, He talks about the return of Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has, has seen or can see, to him be glory and might forever. Amen. And I, I just need to stop right there because this is where we're going. This is who we're going to see. We're leaving this world, and there's not uncertainty. There's not the, this darkness of what's going to happen next. There's not th- this despair of, of maybe this will happen. This is, this is Paul writing to Timothy to say, I want to remind you, as we're about to look at what we, what we consider taking with us to heaven, that we remember where exactly we're going and who we're going to see. And it's absolutely amazing. I mean, if you want to memorize a, a portion of Scripture, and I would love for you to memorize Scripture, Man, this, this is the challenge, 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16. You can't do more linguistically to set apart how amazing God is. You think of all the kings who have ever been, who ever will be, all the kings who have ever reigned, and God reigns as king above them. All the lords who have ever ruled, and God reigns as lord above them. Different versions will phrase this in different ways, and um, they're really trying to accomplish a a couple of different things. Um, So translations will try to be very close to the original language or very close to the flow and the feeling of the original language. I love the ESV and the way that it brings out the exact wording in the original language where it calls God the only sovereign. He's the only one who answers to no one. He's the only one who doesn't have to explain himself to anyone else and we're going to go get to see him, and we're going to get to be with him forever, and it's going to be awesome. So then how do we pack? How do we live this life knowing it's not where we'll be forever, and that we'll be somewhere else with him forever? Let's keep going. First Timothy 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So that's the narrative that we're caught up in. There's a God who we're going to go get to be with forever, and because of that, that changes the way that we live. We don't live like those who have no faith. We don't live like those who have no no hope of life after death. And so it filters my everyday routine. It filters my life goals. It it changes the way that I interact with people personally, calls me to be more forgiving, calls me to be more gracious. It calls me to, to gossip less, to be kind to others because I'm following the ruler of rulers. I'm following the king of kings. I'm going to see him one day. And how, how he, uh, eternity is going to be is in, going to influence how today is going to be. He's going to return. 
I'm going to hear him physically. I'm going to give him a hug. I'm going to sit down and listen to him share. I'm going I'm to stand and sing. I'm going to walk around. It's a very physical idea of what eternity is like. If you read Revelation 22, it talks about there being a river of life that's teeming with fish. Uh, it's got to mean that there's fishing in heaven. So if you get to heaven and you're wondering where I am, check down by the river. Um, I, I, I would imagine that if it's full of fish, we get to go fishing. In fact, I even heard a rumor the other day that one of the fish escaped from heaven, ended up in a lake in Pennsylvania, and some guy caught it. I think we have a picture of it. So uh, just check that out. I mean, wow, that's a, that's a big fish. Um, that definitely came straight out of heaven. Anyway, um, <laughs> God, is, God is so incredible. And the future that awaits us redefines how life should be on earth. And Paul writes Timothy to warn these people who got confused as to which life is more important than the other, the life here or the life there. And this is really like, if I had to sum it up, this is the statement that he wants them to understand that, that Paul wants us to pack in such a way, to get ready for heaven, to pack in such a way that we're rich in both worlds, not one. That we're rich in both worlds, both lives, not just one. That if you look at how we live, he doesn't want us to be rich in one life and not in the other that we would be rich on earth and not rich in heaven. Now, I want to I kind of qualify that because I think we hear something like that and, and we kind of cringe at that idea. I don't think any person will have a bad experience when they show up to heaven. But I do absolutely think that some people will have a more rewarding experience in heaven. I think scripture comes back to that again and again. And it's within that idea of a more rewarding experience that Paul wants us to understand we should plan on being rich in two worlds, not just one. And so he's, he's going to kind of break down how, how do we get there. And he's been looking at a group of people who are the rich people who have just been storing stuff up, um, hoarding things as if this life is all to it. And he, Paul Paul's going, Timothy, you need to go up to him like a dad who's got a bunch of kids who packed way too much for vacation, and it's not going to make it. It's not going to fit in the car. They're living their lives expecting everything that they did to, to somehow somehow make life so great that it'll make up for the fact that, that they can't take any of it to heaven. He wants us to understand that there are two lives. He wants us to be rich in both of them. And I think that's a huge thing for us to look at. And he actually comes down to the end. He says that we may find life that is truly life. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that statement, life that's full of life. I'm just gonna preach the rest of this sermon assuming that you're a person who wants life that's truly life that you're not a person who wants life that's truly death or life that's truly dull, that you want full life and you want true life. So let's move forward with that idea. We'll keep this kind of like packing theme because it kind of works with the text. So we'll say one thing not to pack and two things you definitely want to pack. One thing you don't want and two things you want to pack in this life. If we want life to be fully life and we want to be fully prepared for what comes, li and what comes after death. Um, the first one is this, don't pack arrogance. I mean, packing arrogance, if you even think of that idea that I'm going to live arrogantly and then I'm going to show up to heaven, um, that, that'd be like saying, I'm going to take an invasive plant species on a plane to another country overseas. You're not even going to make it past customs. Like it's going to get taken from you. Uh, it, it would be ridiculous to think about. But what Paul warns Timothy to warn them, uh, so we got like the trickle down effect and then by default we're warning ourselves, it is that we don't get to bring arrogance with us, that it would be detrimental to what's going on. So we might as well live life without it right now. 
I love the way that George Knight says it. He says, the rich are tempted to think that their greater monetary value indicates that they themselves are of greater worth or value. And so here, here's the thing. I don't think being rich is bad. The scripture doesn't talk about that. But what it does talk about is that being rich, having more than you need on a regular basis where you don't have to worry about stuff in life, being rich exposes us to a temptation that's unique to that position in life where all of a sudden we could become arrogance. We, we could become arrogant. And arrogance is, is actually, I'm going to call it an enemy to putting our hope in God. Arrogance is an enemy to putting our hope in God. The more arrogant we are, the less that we hope in something outside of ourselves. If we got a problem, we tend to think of it in terms of how we can manage resources, how we can use money, how we can use our wisdom to be able to avoid it. And so arrogance says, I don't need to put my hope in something outside of myself. The poor person will naturally wonder where the solution to a problem is going to come from. The arrogant person will naturally solve it with, the, with their own skills and resources. They know that it can come, the solution can come from themselves. So you've got these two different situations where the rich isn't necessarily, it's not bad to be rich. We'll read another text in a little bit that talks about it in a positive light. But the temptation is there for us to put our hope in something other than God. And if we put our hope in something other than God, it exposes us to the problem of arrogance. And so, so we back up for a second and ask the question, well, what's kind of at the core of arrogance? Like what, what is, uh, what's true of arrogance and how do we know if we're arrogant? Well, the Greek word here m- means lofty thinking, to think highly of oneself, to think of as one's, oneself is better than other people. And so I had this moment, um, I think I was honestly just driving to Chick-fil-A and, uh, and I was, uh, I was asking myself the question, really in, in prayer with God, going, God, like how would, how, would a person, how, how would a person know if they struggled with arrogance? Because I don't think the people that struggle with this, and I think we all to some degree struggle, struggle with it, how would the person who struggles with arrogance know that they're arrogant? What would be the litmus tense, test for this? And uh, the answer came pretty quickly to me. And I remember just not liking the answer because it exposed how prone to arrogance I was. And I was like, that's the A, that can't be it. And B, if that's it, I don't want to talk about it because that's, I'll be talking about myself. Um, But as I continue to think about it, that diagnostic statement really defines not just me, but I think at the core of, of a lot, it helps us to figure out whether or not we struggle with arrogance. And so here's, here's the diagnostic statement that made me cringe, that made me realize man, this is a bigger problem than I thought. Here it is. Like the statement was, if it was me, if it was me, if I were the one, if I were in their shoes, that wouldn't have happened. If it was up to me, I would have done something differently. I would never be in that place if it was me. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, I am the standard for everybody else and everybody else who's got issues, if they were more like me, they wouldn't have the issues that they have. And, and so what do, we, what do we hope in if we wrestle with arrogance? And I th- again, I think we do this all the time. We hope in ourselves. We're the standard. We're the one who has it all together. And everybody else is wrong. Everybody else has got an issue. And so if you catch yourself with that phrase, if it was me, I think it's telling that we tend to land in a category where we're more arrogant than we realize. I think it's a sign for us to say, no, I want to be humble. I'm not going to compare myself to others. I'm going to look to God. I'm going to put my hope in him. 
which is where Paul goes with Timothy he says, don't let the rich be arrogance you know, put their money, their hope in wealth, have them put their hope in God. God's the constant. He, he is the one who we look to. Even if we have things together in such a way that we don't think we have to hope, we still have to trust in him. And I, I love the way that the, the original language puts this out there where there's different tenses that express how certain something is or how solid it is. And this uses a perfect tense to put, to put our hope with an assured conviction in God. That this isn't something we're like, eh, maybe. No, like we're going, uh, I found myself tempted to help to hope in my own abilities. I found myself tempted to hope in my own strength or my own money. I'm wrong. I need to put it back in God. That's where it goes. That we put our hope there. We, we don't put our hope in all the other things that compete for our hope. And if you think about that, our, um, you know, our, our economy competes for our hope. Politicians compete for our hope. Um, our ability to plan, our finances. These are all things that compete for our hope. And Paul writes Timothy and goes, hey, do not let people be arrogant and hope in things that aren't God. It's not what's calling, it's not what we're called to as we consider what comes after, after life to be with God. And so I think that the question is, uh, do I trust in God or do I trust in what God's made? And I think that's what we don't pack is this idea of arrogance because it doesn't help us as we look to what's coming. We've got to be hope-filled. We're not going to be hope-filled if we're looking at ourselves for the solution to every one of our issues and problems. So that's number one. Number two um, is something we do pack, and I love this one. We pack lots of enjoyment. He says that we should put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So we should pack, and this isn't just in the life to come. The idea is that we right now in our own life begin to pack a sense of enjoyment where we're constantly looking for things that we can appreciate about what God has given us. And so like, I'm gonna do my best right now to not get on like this personal soapbox, but I, I love when Christian, I love meeting a Christian who's real and has a consistent hope. I struggle with the Christian who always complains. I struggle with a follower of Christ who finds something to be wrong in every scenario because I don't think that's what God's called us to. And if that's you, I love you. I love you dearly. These are scriptures you gotta, you gotta memorize. You gotta keep putting your hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. I mean, the term enjoyment there is literally used elsewhere to talk about the enjoyment of sin. It's actually a word that's a bit sensual that we would really enjoy. Not that just we would enjoy what God's provided, but that we on this planet would find lots of reasons to enjoy what God has given us. That that would be characteristic of us. So if you're like, if you're a person who wrestles with that whole enjoyment thing, man, take your glasses off if you wear glasses um, and write like, Write scripture on the inside of your glasses. No, you're, you're quarantined, so nobody's even going to see this anyway. But like right there, put, put your hope in God. Or um, you, you know what? And rejoice in all circumstances. Give joy. You know, give joy all the time. Um, find reason to pray him. Whatever, whatever it is that you need to memorize in scripture, be joyful in all circumstances. Rejoice. I say it again. Rejoice. These are things that should be true of somebody who has resurrection waiting for them, somebody who's loved by God in every single scenario from here on out for all of eternity and who's been blessed. The, the, this should just be our general demeanor in life that we're looking for things to enjoy throughout life. If you don't believe me, 
I don't think we can really say it better than Solomon did in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He says this. He says, this is what I have observed. So, actually, let me pause. He's just gotten done saying that we're all going to die. Like everybody's going to live. You're going to die. You enter this world naked. You're going to leave this world naked. You don't get to take anything with you. And you're like, wow, Solomon, you win the award for most encouraging, joy-filled speech ever. That's awesome. I, I want to hear more of your talks. But then this is what he says after that, that sort of bleak outlook of, of naked I was born, naked I die. I don't get to take anything with me. And then this is what he says. He says, this is what I observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during their few days of life God has given them, for this is their light, lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. He says, I get it. I understand that there's, there's going to be a day when we leave this world. When we leave this world, I'm not going to take my house. I'm not going to take my car. I'm not going to take my, my hunting stuff or my fishing stuff or any of it with me. So then should I just walk around basically saying, woe is me. I can't enjoy anything. He says, no. I've come to realize that while we're on this earth, God has given us certain things and he rewards our hard work in such a way that we should actually enjoy it. We should be enjoying things wherever we're at in life. It should be true of us no matter where we are or, or what we're doing. I was thinking about this and like, what, what is your happy place? What's a place where you just like, you, if you're there, you're generally in a good mood. And for me, my happy place is, would, would be this. Like if I'm, if I'm hunting and there's a tree stand where I can hunt on one side and yet there's a lake where I can fish on the other side, and then like, so you got tree stand and you got fishing. And then, then underneath at the bottom of the tree stand, if there was a Chick-fil-A where whenever I was hungry, I could just reach down and grab a Chick-fil-A. That's my happy place. Also, my wife and kids would be there because if I didn't say that, I would get in a lot of trouble. So, so we've got hunting, we've got fishing, we've got Chick-fil-A, we've got my wife and kids in church. Church would be there. Absolutely. hundred percent. Those things would all be there. That's my happy place because they're things that I enjoy. God is telling us that wherever we are, whatever place we're in, there's a reason to be happy because of who he is, because of what waits for us, and because of the fact that he has created this world for us to find enjoyment in. So the Christian that, that grumbles or complains, man, we're missing out on God's intended purpose of work hard, enjoy it. Share the gospel, anticipate what comes after, love and serve each other. But that enjoyment piece often gets left out because we're, we're so focused on what's next that we forget to enjoy what God wants us to enjoy right now. And so here's, here's the trick to this that I think helps it to all come into balance because I don't think any, any serious follower of Christ is gonna say, okay, good, so, so then I should enjoy things as if enjoying things on earth is the most important thing. I think we fall right back into the category Paul's warning us about. And so how do we, how do we find that balance to it? And I, I find it personally in the question of, do we chase pleasure more than we chase God? Do we chase pleasure more than the God who brings us pleasure? H here's the thing. I think when we chase God more than we chase pleasure, and so if God's here and pleasure's here, if we chase God more than we chase pleasure, you'll find and scriptures will speak to this again and again, you'll find that pleasure itself becomes more pleasurable. That God has created the world in such a way that if you follow him first and then you enjoy what he's made, 
what he's made will become more enjoyable. It will be more satisfying because it's not bearing a weight that it couldn't bear. But if, if you get that wrong, and if you chase pleasure more than you chase God, pleasure will never be able to meet the expectations of what pleasure was meant to be. You'll be chasing after a satisfaction that you won't get to. Like if this is you, if you're a person who says, you know, God can be part of my life, but I'm gonna pursue pleasure more than him, what, what you'll find is you'll have a friend who tags along for the ride and your friend's name will be discontentment. And it'll be there everywhere you go and everything you chase after in life, if it's a drink, if it's a food, if it's a vacation, if, if it's a sexual experience, wherever you are, discontentment goes along for the ride. You've got a friend, it's discontentment. You've got a bestie, it's Debbie Downer. There's always gonna be something on the other side of it that is gonna rain on your parade, parade and it won't be life as God intended. It's definitely not life that is true life as God talks about. He wants us to enjoy it, but we never, ever, ever enjoy it more than we enjoy him. And if we enjoy him, we happen to enjoy what we're enjoying more than we would otherwise. So having a conversation about um, this this whole quarantine stuff with uh, a friend of mine who's a, a very, uh, he's a guy I really respect. And he was talking about this and we talked about the idea of the influence that this has on our understanding of end times. Is this, is this a time when, when we're looking at Christ's return? And, uh, you know, initially as we, we began, it's like, hey, that could be any moment. And then he asked a question which I thought was so telling of American Christianity. And he said, why do you think most Americans fear the end times or the idea of the end times? As I thought about it, the answer that came to my mind is because we quietly think that American life and American luxury is better than heaven and Jesus. We quietly think that what I can have on this earth and what I can experience on this earth is better than what I can with Jesus. And I, I, I just can't even imagine how one day we'll be there and, and we'll look back and say, I can't believe that was ever a thought that we had for a second. That the God who created things for us to enjoy here would somehow let us down when we got there. That somehow that he made earth and the pleasures of earth and what earth was capable. Somehow that heaven was secondary in what he made. Like, oh man, I'm sorry you were let down. Like that somehow the appetizer was better than the main course. No, that's not the case. We're gonna get there and we're gonna just be blown away with what heaven's like. And as I look at this, I, I bring scriptures to mind like Psalm 16, that, that in heaven at the right hand of God, there's endless pleasure why would we think they're less than the pleasures we have here? Why would we think in a world that's been ruined by the curse and ruined by sin that somehow pleasure will be, be significantly less there? I, I, just, I think it's contradictory to the idea of what, what heaven is in the scriptures. The idea of heaven, uh, it, it should thrill us because it's full of God and it's full of pleasure and those two things will never contradict themselves. It's full of God and it's full of pleasure and those two things will never be at odds. They can't be at odds. And so, so you've got heaven, you've got pleasure uh, with no guilt, with no side effect, with no regrets, with no vulnerability, with no loss. And, and that thought should excite you and it, it should say then, I should get used to enjoying things now because I'm really gonna be enjoying things there. I might as well get used. I should pack enjoyment now. I should be a person who's skilled at enjoying things now because I'm never gonna get tired of doing it there. So that, that's, the, that's the first thing we pack. So we don't pack arrogance, we do pack enjoyment. The third thing is this, and I'll talk about it in terms of carry-on. If you've ever flown on a plane, the carry-on, that's like, that's the most important stuff. Because you're assuming there's a 90% chance they're gonna lose your luggage. 
that it's not going to go where you're going to go. And so you want to get there and you want to have at least a pair of clothes and whatever is expensive that couldn't blow up the plane, that goes on your carry-on. And by the way, just because I said plane and blowing up, next time I fly, I'm going to flag for security. Um, but I'm okay with that because I pack all my stuff in carry-on and I don't care if they lose my luggage. So um, your carry-on is the stuff that you're like, I need to make sure that gets where it's going. So what's our carry-on as we think about packing to be able to have stuff that actually gets to go with us? Um, Paul says to, to Timothy, we should, pack, I mean, we should pack good deeds in our carry-on. That we should be a people who do good while we wait for good. That we're waiting while we're waiting for this endless pleasure, this greatest pleasure, this experience of knowing and being with God. That while, while we're waiting for afterlife in the present life, we should be, we should be people who do good who are rich in good deeds, who are generous, and who are willing to share. The way, uh, the way we look at that, by the way, is it's structured. If you were to go back and read that whole passage that we read, it starts out with command the rich not to be arrogant, and then he goes on do, 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 and then he gets to the end, do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous, be willing to share. When he gets to those things, they actually tie back to the initial thought that don't be arrogant. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous. Be willing to share. In other words, these are these are opposites of what arrogance is. Like so, if you another, n- want another way to say whether or not you're arrogant, well, the arrogant person, according to scripture, is somebody who's who's not who's somebody who is rich in good deeds, who does good things, who's generous, who's willing to share, because they have an, an idea of life that says this isn't just about me and storing up and treasuring things for me. I'm going to be a person who takes the things that I enjoy that God has given me and I'm going to share them with other people. Here's what I look at this, and I I ask myself this question. These are things that God says we get to take with us that influence life after death. So then, what does that say? What does that say about heaven that these are the things that get to go with us? To be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. And I I think the insinuation is that these are things that get to go with us because they're things that are true of what that experience is like. They follow us because that's what it's going to be like. That heaven itself will be rich in generosity, be rich in good deeds, and rich in a willingness to share. That the highest virtues in, in, on earth will be regular, ordinary, everyday experiences in heaven on, on an ongoing basis. That this is what we should do now. That heaven will be rampant with good deeds as much as we wish it was on earth. And so wh- where do we, wh- well, how do we get there? Or, or, or where should I say, should I say, how do we end up at that place where we believe that that's the case? Because we go to Revelation 22 and in verse 3 where it's kind of breaking it all down and he says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And I just love that statement because if you go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, God has created a perfect existence with humanity and then you've got the curse which has tainted everything then all the way up through the scriptures including to this very day. To this very day you're going to have difficult conversations with people this week sometime because of the curse. You're going to have a hard time doing your job because of the curse. If you're married, you're going to have a misunderstanding, a miscommunication with your wife because of the curse. Um, you, you're going to go out and, and drive somewhere and you're going to get stuck in traffic because of the curse. Because life is not how it's supposed to be. And we have in Revelation 22 this beautiful statement, the curse will no longer be there. It's done. It's gone. And everything that has made interpersonal relationships difficult is gone. Everything that has made work difficult 
gone. Everything that has bought, brought you any sorts of, of shame or disappointment or vulnerability is gone because Jesus Christ has died on the cross and made a way for us to live forever. And in doing so, he has bought back and healed and renewed all of what existence will be so we can be with him in perfect existence forever. We enjoy life that is truly life. So we don't pack arrogance. We pack lots of enjoyment. And we, we take on our carrying. We take, we take good deeds. And, and so we find that, that we're not rich in one world, but we're rich in both. And that's the idea. And that's what God calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, I love you and I praise you. And I, Lord, as I anticipate a life that, that is just sold out in this idea of waiting for a life to come with you forever, Father, I pray that I and those who are watching, who are, who are joining us, yeah, I pray that we would be convinced more and more of the existence that comes and waits for us. And Lord, I pray that we would pack accordingly, that we'd plan to live a life that shows what it means for us to be excited about the next life. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen.